Welcome back to another episode of Northeastern Next, a showcase for the stories, talents, and thoughtful insights of our university's current and future alumni. I'm your host, Caitlin, a current D'Amore McKim graduate student. Today, I'm here with Dr. Nash Hernandez, a serial entrepreneur and a triple husky. Dr. Nash is a fractional regulatory affairs leader for multiple biopharma companies with more than 27 years of experience taking rare disease, gene therapy, cell therapy, and advanced tissue products from concept and clinical trials to approval and commercialization. Welcome, Dr. Nash. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, we are excited to have you. So for any listeners who aren't aware of what regulatory affairs are, or if they're just not familiar with the biopharma industry in general, can you just give a brief overview of your industry, what it is that you do, and sort of what drew you to this field initially in general? Well, I'll start with that first. Um, I came to Boston on a waiting list at BU Medical School. I didn't make that waiting list, but I got a job as a temp. And so I fell into regulatory affairs, working at a company that was developing blood substitutes for humans and animals. In terms of what the profession really is, it's a profession that was really developed from the desire of governments to protect the public health. And they wanted to do this by controlling the safety and efficacy of products in the areas of pharmaceuticals, veterinary medicines, medical devices, pesticides, agrochemical, cosmetics, and complementary medicines. And they also wanted the companies who were doing this to be responsible for the discovery, the testing, the manufacture, and marketing of these products so that they could ensure that they're safe and that they make a worthwhile contribution to the public health and welfare. And so this created a new class of professionals who emerged just to handle regulatory matters for companies. Most of us started out in the lab and then there was a filing to a regulatory agency and a person would say, hey, do you want to work on this particular filing? And so a lot of it was just developed by experience, if you will. And then later on, probably in the 90s or so, formal programs began to emerge that gave a a formal way of studying regulatory science. So in terms of what we're responsible for, it's a lot, but basically we keep track of all regulations and legislations in regions where a company either operates or wish to have their products. We advise on legal and scientific matters requirements. We collect and collate and evaluate scientific data, present registration documents to agencies, conduct meetings with the FDA and equivalent. And we also give strategic and technical advice at the highest levels in the company. So regulatory typically has a seat at the table. And in short, we basically help companies avoid problems by badly kept records, inappropriate scientific thinking, or just a poor presentation of data. Well, I think that lends itself very well to my next question, which is, what would you say are the biggest challenges in the regulatory affairs industry? And I know from a prior conversation you and I had that you created a model that's able to predict when there will be fewer drug approvals. Um, So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. But I assume the fact that 
such a small number of drugs actually receive FDA approval is a huge challenge in and of itself. So um, I'll turn it over to you to talk a little bit about those challenges. Great. So I'd start with the biggest challenges in the regulatory affairs industry. It's really the increased regulatory requirements. Those are onerous and they're also expensive. The cost of compliance is quite high. There is also the increased safety and quality concerns, which a lot of times come from the increased outsourcing of functions. So many companies in an effort to cut cost would outsource to countries who may not have strong regulatory capacity or systems in place. And this makes it quite a bit of a headache for the regulatory scientists. There's also heterogeneity among regulatory agencies. Not all regions or countries act the same way. And so we're overburdened by trying to figure out what will pass muster in these particular countries or regions. And market size seems to matter very much, and unfortunately so. So we have seen a drive for orphan drugs, which are drugs who are for treatment in diseases where there are probably hundreds or thousands of patients. And so companies have realized that they can command a higher premium for these drugs. And because the government has provided incentives, we've seen more companies going away from sort of the the larger disease areas and focusing on these rare diseases just to command higher prices. So that has fueled in at least my mind what I see as a lack of innovation. So companies would follow the same targets. No one's really doing basic research anymore. It's kind of the me too. The other is the financial and capital markets. It's very difficult to raise capital. Last year alone, there were about 119 companies who had layoffs. 23 alone were in November of last year. This year, we've already had about 60 or so of those companies. So those are sort of the challenges that I see. In terms of the model I had created, The FDA is a regulatory agency, but they're also beholden to various stakeholders. And so what I had predicted was that once there is uh, an FDA approval that turns out to be problematic, that based on that, these public servants would become more conservative in future approvals. They might not be willing to allow flexibility. And so that would result in fewer approvals. And so I would say that the worst decade or so, which I call the decade to forget, is basically 96 to 2007, where the FDA had approved a total of 199 new molecular entities, which are just new drugs which have never been marketed in any form. And that you could compare to 2002 to 2007, where there were about 122. So it was almost a 39% decline. This has changed, however. I've been looking at approvals since that time, and it's trending anywhere from 20 to 49. I think that what's important for everyone to understand is that there are particular concepts. So the first is quality. That's a characteristic of the drug, including manufacturing. And then there's the safety, which is a relative 
risk of harm and the effectiveness, which is the benefit that the drug provides to the patient. And for a health authority, it's about the risk benefit ratio, the degree to which the risk is acceptable given the amount of benefit that it will provide the patient and the severity of disease. So you could imagine the agency would not allow a drug that has lots of toxicity for a skin condition. They may view that as cosmetic and not having a favorable benefit risk profile. Whereas in cancer or oncology, that benefit risk ratio can change. That's super interesting to think about it like that and to kind of hear a little bit about what the considerations are when bringing a drug to market. And I know you just mentioned a little bit about lack of innovation. Can you just briefly expand upon what the implications are for a lack of innovation in the companies that are developing these drugs? Absolutely. I think that as public health suffers, and it suffers because we rely on pharmaceutical companies to bring drugs to market. But if they are not doing basic research and just following what other companies are doing, because it's easier. Once you have a validated target, you know, you know, millions of dollars has been invested. And so I think it does a disservice to the public health because we're not getting that diversity of targets and diversity of drugs as we should have. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. In earlier conversation you and I had, you mentioned to me that your master's degree made you an expert, but your doctorate made you a thought leader in regulatory affairs. I loved when you told me that. It really stuck with me. So I'm wondering if you can just talk about the differences between being an expert and being a thought leader in a field and what some of your big takeaways were from your programs at Northeastern. Absolutely. So I would say that experts are technically qualified, but they often see things in black and white. Their expertise is rooted in training and what I would view as the accepted fundamentals of a profession. They would say, well, the regulation says this, the guidance says that, and they're usually sidelined because they think that their job is to tell the team or the company what not to do. A thought leader or a key opinion leader is someone who, based on expertise and industry perspective, really offer unique guidance and who inspires innovation, who influences others. We share insightful ideas, oftentimes points of view that cannot be obtained elsewhere. And we also recognize trends before they happen. An example is I work in rare diseases where there are no precedents. So there have been no drugs approved in this particular disease. So you really have to create a regulatory pathway. That means convincing a health authority like the FDA who might not have that knowledge. Because in, in essence, innovation is always ahead of regulatory agency learning. So when we're talking about a rare disease where there are only hundreds of patients, what does a clinical study look like? You can't do 1,000 to 5,000 patients to study. So trying to move that needle and create a pathway is what I view as the hallmark of a thought leader. And to me, it's the art and science of getting an approval with the least burdensome program and having that approval during the first review cycle. So um, I went to NEU because I found it difficult to bring along 
the chief medical officer at the companies I worked for. They would be like, well, I'm a doctor. And so I wanted parity. And what I found, at least for me, and really gives me a few of the takeaways is that anything is possible if you will it. And that's because you have to be willing to make the change, to take the necessary steps and even make the sacrifices. And ideas without implementation has no value. So you can think of things and you can talk about them, but if you don't implement them or if you don't try, then the value is lost. What Northeastern has made me also realize is that in the knowledge economy, you are the product. So when I go and speak to CEOs and chief medical officers, I am representing not only my knowledge, but basically the body of evidence, the body of intelligence that I've gleaned from my experience in the Masters of Regulatory Science program and I would say that like a husky, we're friendly, intelligent, outgoing, alert, and gentle. But I find in society, not everyone is comfortable with ambition. And so what Northeastern taught me really well is that there are two faces, if you will. There's the face that you wear when you are in those situations where you are the product and you're on display and you are actually making a difference. But there's also the face you wear when you are not as guarded. And so I have mentored students in regulatory affairs over the years, and I've enjoyed it primarily because I get to give back, but I also receive because what you get is that um, learning from others' experience and their perspectives. And so taking all of that Together, I would say that Northeastern has changed my life for the better and has allowed me to live a life I would never have dreamed of as a young boy growing up in Trinidad and Tobago. That is awesome. I love that so much. Thank you for sharing that story and kind of that journey at Northeastern and how that got you to where you are. I think it's really important, no matter what stage you're at in your career, always be learning from others, listening to their perspectives and taking it all in. Well, thank you. So, Dr. Nash, because this is Northeastern Next, I always like to end by asking our guests, what is next? Ah, that's a big question. I think when I've looked at my career, both on the entrepreneurial side of things and in regulatory science, I want to not only advise companies, because companies come to consultants when they have a problem. And so you solve the problem and then you give the program back to the team who screwed it up in the first place. And so I was looking for a way that I could bring my knowledge of technology as well as science and make a difference. So I'm working on about four initiatives. One of them is Hercules Bioscience. And because I'm a technologist, it blends wonderfully, but it's basically using artificial intelligence to find approved but off-patent drugs that can be reformulated and that can work in many diseases based on the mechanism of action. So you can imagine we've had hundreds of thousands of drugs approved and all of this information is sitting in particular places. So getting that and parsing through it to find potential candidates is what Hercules Bioscience will be doing because it really takes a Herculean effort 
to cure disease. The other is footprint therapeutics, and it's really what I call the founders biotechnology company. There are so many scientists in labs who just don't have that guidance or ability or a team. So the concept is that we would have founders join Footprint and they will work as founders in residence and spin out their own biotechnology company, but benefiting from our staff and our expertise. The other is Rexford Inc., and that's basically fractional regulatory affairs leaders. If you could imagine how much it costs a company to have a department when you can certainly have experts at a fraction of the cost. And the last is Abby Therapeutics. And I have a high school friend who has worked with autistic kids, and so she came to me about a year ago with an idea. So Abby Therapeutics is basically a cognitive disorder company and will be looking at software as a medical device. So this will not be medicines, but it will be software as a medical device to help people who have autism and other cognitive disorders. So those are sort of what's next for me. That's incredible. That is a lot of things next, a lot that you're working on, but they all sound super exciting super rewarding, super important. So congratulations on all of those initiatives. Well, thank you. Northeastern has made me a thought leader and I thought it was important to share my story and ensure that all of our alums know that they are part of a very rich and everlasting tradition. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Nash, for joining today. Again, I am so excited for alums to hear this story. It's incredible and it's a really timely topic, I think. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Northeastern Next. If this episode brought back some great memories, check out our Husky Starter page online to support current student endeavors or reach out to us via our email at alumni at northeastern.edu or on Instagram at northeastern underscore alumni to point us in the direction of a great story, either from you or a friend. And lastly, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you can hear a new episode in your feed every other Wednesday. Remember, once a Husky, always a Husky. See you the week after next.